This is a Federal News Network podcast. The government doesn't need more financial management employees who are just accountants. No, the modern financial management employee needs a set of skills that are much different today than 30 years ago when Congress passed the CFO Act. That's why the Chief Financial Officers Council released a new workforce strategy. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller sat down virtually with the three main authors, Mike Wetklow, Deputy CFO at the National Science Foundation, Ben Fix, Deputy CFO at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and Stephen Kunz, the Deputy CFO at the Commerce Department. They discussed how the CFO Council plans to help create the National Financial Manager of tomorrow. First, we hear from NSF's Mike Wetklow. You really need a a mix of skills. You need to be ready to diversify yourself, learn different things. I mean, the financial management is so much more than um, counting and reporting. I mean, there's a lot of uh, systems work. There's a lot of technology, performance, risk management, and supporting our our leaders with um, decision-making. So that's kind of what we're striving to move past, uh, you know, basic accounting and, and compliance activities and reskilling, upskilling. That's just how you know, things are these days to constantly be changing yourself. This is Steve. If I could also add, add to that, what the financial workforce has done at the beginning has been fantastic for the first 30 years of the CFO Act and, and getting ourselves to, to where we have a majority of the CFO Act agencies all having you know, clean opinions and working towards improving our compliance, our internal controls, all of which are really important to be able to give credibility to the numbers that we generate in our financial statements. Now we're at that next stage where now that we have credible numbers, what, what are we going to do with them? And, and how can we be more effective as an organization and as individuals to be that business partner, the, the, another seat at the table that takes the financial information and provides viable data-driven options? You know, and as Mike pointed out, it, it's all about the fact that we are now, you know, a mass in data and we have uh, many new technological tools at our disposal that we did not have 30 years ago. And some of those tools, as Mike would probably point out to me, did exist you know, 20 years ago, but they weren't applied to the financial management community. Um, and now that we have this wealth of data that is, is going to allow us to be able to inform the mission side of our organizations, Um, It's incumbent upon us to develop the workforce to be able to access that data and be able to present it in meaningful ways that the mission side of our agencies can all utilize to make, you know, prompt business decisions and know that they're making it with the with the most accurate and uh, latest financial information available to them. I think what Steve says is key here. The workforce now has an opportunity to take advantage of the foundation that was built on. And in a lot of ways, that's what this CFO workforce strategy has done. Let's start there. There's some broad skill sets, some broad goals within it. Let's let's walk through the strategy a little bit and walk me through how you determined which skill sets were most important and, and which strategic goals, how'd you come up with those? This is Steve. We basically started with the assistance of the Office of Personnel Management giving us some facilitated advice using a strategic foresight methodology. So it was a very structured approach on how we actually looked at it. And I'm not going to get into all of the details of that because that could take up the whole conversation. (laughs) But what we did is we kind of looked at what were the major drivers of what would be driving the change in our financial management workforce. And what we came up with were data and technology. 
as we went through that, we looked at different scenarios that could potentially play out. Like what would the future of financial management look like with data and technology driving that to varying degrees? And that's how we ended up coming up with the seven uh, objectives or strategic goals. All of them are focused on leveraging data, leveraging the skill sets of our, of our current workforce and making sure that we are attracting that workforce. And then also ensuring that the work environment or our, our culture is adapting to the ability to use that as opposed to being uh, using that data and that technology as opposed to being purely compliance driven. Compliance is still going to play a key role in what we're doing, but we're going to be leveraging that capability with data and with technology. So this is Ben. We use the foresight method. And based on looking at the future scenarios that we examined, we identified 10 skills that the financial manager workforce really needs to succeed in the CFO of the future. Not surprisingly, two of the main skill sets are around data management and technology proficiency skills. And what I mean by that is, you know, the science of analyzing data to drive insights for decision making and also applying technology to add value. Um, coupled with that is virtual engagement, the ability to add value in an online environment, something that we've all experienced for the past year, um, a rapid upskilling based on, on the on the job experience. Also rob robotic process automation, the ability to apply software to automate routine repetitive tasks so that our staff can focus on more strategic work. And then of course there's traditional skills that are also still very much needed like continuous learning, critical thinking and creativity, executive communication decision support, business process improvement, project management, and contract management. So those are the skills that we're really concentrated on. One of the things that we've seen over the last year and a half or two years, is specifically around the technology piece, is the CFO community has really adopted RPA and other intelligent automation much more quickly than maybe any other part of, of the government and any other kind of, of the back office functions. Do you get a sense, is that also what started to drive this effort? You started to see the change was happening and, and in some ways, the strategy is, is, is maybe catching up to that change a little bit. And this is Mike. That's exactly right. RPA was a big start of it. That has a lot to do with using the technology to help with workload. We have a lot to comply with, a lot of work, and, and the tools and technology and RPA helps us with that. But um, one, one thing we're really getting into now, uh, one thing I'm personally working on is upskilling is um, data science. I mean, you know, really understanding computer science and coding statistics because it, it all kind of builds on itself i mean you use the robot technology to help with the manual workloads but then you use things like r or python to turn data into information and decision making and then that's it's almost like you got these different gateways you, you go through and now we're starting to see gateways to machine learning artificial intelligence it just keeps um you know, on, on expanding. So it's just a really, really good time to be in financial management. When we talk about the skill sets and the job functions and, and data driving that, does that require from your perspectives, a different type of person you need to recruit or, or upskill? This is Steve. There's a couple of components to that. One of our goals is to support the current workforce. And that means that we have the basic skill sets that are needed because that is part of what any financial management professional would do in order to be able to do their jobs. Basically, what we're looking at is adding to that skill set. You know, and it, most of it is driven by adopting to technology, another one of our, our, our strategic goals, as well as being able to do data analytics. 
data visualization and things of that nature that will allow us to take the wealth of data that we have accrued through all of our systems and under the under the auspices of gathering all that financial information for our audits, et cetera, and being able to utilize that. So in one instance, we take the skill sets that we currently have within our workforce and we build on them and, and make them adapt to the new technology that will allow them to be able to take that information and, and, and apply it. That would be one component. And then it does cause us to have to look at what is currently coming in from graduate schools and recent grads from uh, all the different financial components of the institute, you know, academic institutions that are out there and be able to see what are they looking to be able to apply? What skill sets will they have? And a lot of it, again, is focusing on utilizing that data and being able to make an important mark on how can business decisions be improved and how can policy decisions be improved for that? Mike Wetklow, Deputy CFO at the National Science Foundation. You also heard from Ben Fix, Deputy CFO at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and Steve Kunz, the Deputy CFO at the Commerce Department. They were speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller about the CFO Council's new workforce strategic plan. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style. You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. <laughs> Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped 
the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at the time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer, many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision, 
was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick. Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. A financial plan isn't just about money. It's about what matters most to you, like protecting your family, supporting your community, and building a legacy for future generations. At Northwestern Mutual, we start with a conversation about the life you want to live now and years from now. Whether you're paying down debt, saving for college, or planning for retirement, we have an eye on your bigger picture. Get access to our financial expertise at harlem.nm.com. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, headquartered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.